Ladies and gentlemen, the spectacular Spider-Man! Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. Otto Octavius was weak. Call me Dr. Octopus! From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Welcome back, Spectacular fans. Today we'll be, we'll be talking about the episode Accomplices, and joining me, as usual, is the supervising producer of the series, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hello. Good afternoon, Greg. So now with this episode, it appears we are jumping into not the penultimate episode, but definitely the penultimate arc. Although, looking back, it sometimes it feels like, I know it's technically two more arcs, but they often feel like the same arc, considering there's a really common link that's a through line through all of them, all the way to the end. Uh, well, we, you know, the idea intentionally was to build it all modularly um, so that every episode stands alone, every little mini arc stands alone, every season stands alone, and then the series as a whole. So uh, if we're doing our job right, then, you know, there's a, a, a sense of uh, completion coming at the end of every episode, but also a sense every three or four episodes and then um, every season. Agreed, and you definitely pulled it off. I guess, well, this is the ending of the episode, but, I mean, is, but I've already sort of gone into it. But this is where Norman Osborn really re-enters the series as a major player. I guess so. I mean, he's got very little to do in this episode. One of the things that struck me re-watching it last night is how, let's see, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. We had like 15 actors in the show, which is <laughs> a pretty huge number and um you know norman has one or two lines of dialogue uh uh peter mcnichol had like one line of dialogue uh it was kind of amazing uh on one level just from a budgetary standpoint how i got away with using that many actors uh in the episode i'm kind of surprised i managed it uh in hindsight uh things are much tighter now than they used to be i guess yeah, I have been noticing that lately in animation, but you know what? At least he said more than one word this time and more than two letters. <laughs> True. All right, and um, I'm also, this is episode also introduces for the very first time Silver Sable, who is really one of the more radical departures from the source material here. So would you like to t talk about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, for us, one of the goals was to, create a certain level of coherence um, and cohesion to, I know I've, we've talked about this before, to our reimagining of the old continuity and our combining and, and merging of certain things. So um, just the whole Silver Sable, Silver Mane thing felt like a natural. Um, the idea that Hammerhead used to work for Silver Mane, uh, had a relationship with the boss's daughter, got fired, and in my head canon, uh, got his head caved in at the same time, 
required the replacement of it with a steel plate um, for messing with the boss's daughter and uh, then, you know, went over to work for the big man. Um, while, meanwhile, Sable sort of grows up and becomes Silver Sable as uh, her dad's primary enforcer. And then, you know, we have long-term plans for Silver Sable that would have brought her eventually a little closer to the Silver Sable that um, people are more familiar with from the comics. But we wanted her origin to come out of, again, the cohesive universe that we were trying to portray here. Uh, and going into gangland, just this idea of, in essence, or not gangland, gang war, I should say, uh, of, you know, there was the old family who treated uh, criminal enterprises like a family business, uh, the big man who treated it like a corporate business, and um, Doc Ock, who was looking at it as a science, and these three, um, in essence, figures who were going to fight over who would control all these interests, um, but each coming to it from a very different place. And then sort of starting to get into the politics of all that in this episode, while simultaneously um, introducing Kingsley for our long-term season three plans that we never got to do. Um, and so it just all seemed to fit together rather well. And, you know, the, episode's called Accomplices, and it's full of all these sort of compromised partnerships, uh, starting with uh, Boswell and Pete, Rhino and Spidey, uh, Hammerhead and Sable teaming up, uh, all these sort of things playing through, and just trying to get the sophistication of the world. That was sort of the point of the teaser, which was this idea that we see this black cat crime and then when she's sort of caught, there isn't any violence. There's no need for violence. Once she realizes who she's stealing from, she's like, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, I get it. This is, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Hammerhead's like, it's fine, no harm, no foul, just get out. And she does, and it's as simple as that. It's a fun little black cat moment. And it was also for us to try and show that, you know, this wasn't a group of people who were violent for the sake of violence. They, this was all to them a, uh, um, about economics. Yeah. I find that a lot of people seem to just expect the worst from villains or supervillains all the time. So I kind of like that whole notion where they let her walk away because really she's no different than any of them. <laughs> I mean, well she is, but not, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned Kingsley. King, Roderick Kingsley is one of my favorite villains in the comics, and it was really nice to see him here. This is one of the biggest reasons why I wish there had been a third season, because I can tell even here you were sprinkling clues and setting things up. I mean, I'll admit, I mean, Kingsley really behaves differently in the middle of this episode as opposed to when we first see him and when we last see him. That is true. He does. <laughs> I mean, uh, that it, that was something that leapt out at me. I find that it didn't leap out at a lot of other people. And I've also noticed that in the credits, he's only credited as Kingsley and have the full name, unlike everybody else. Is there a reason for that? 
Yes, there is. <laughs> Read between the lines, everybody. If you know your comics, it's not going to spoil, but if you know your comics, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> and um, let's. So I think we should also discuss the... Donald Menken has a huge role in that, so you gave yourself a lot of dialogue this time. How was that? I mean, it's a fun being directed by Jamie. I should have asked him about that when he was here, but... Um, yeah, Jamie's great. Um, so, and it's a nice sort of flip on the dynamic for us. But, uh, um, you know, I, I love playing Macon. He's, he's a fun character. Uh, he's very dry. Um, and, uh, so very much within my acting range. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't uh, go out of my way to give myself a lot of dialogue, but I also don't shy away from it. So it's just, I think all his dialogue is very utilitarian. It all serves a purpose. Um, I don't think it was me padding the part at all as story editor, um, but it it was fun to do. Sounded like you were having fun. I mean, I, it's always fun to hear you on the shows. I'm enjoying you as Snapper Carr over on uh, Young Justice, especially when his trees got accidentally burned. So that was uh, that was fun, but that's a totally different show, and hopefully maybe we'll talk about that again sometime. But um, this is episode also makes me lament that they killed off Frederick Fosdell in the comics relatively early. I think... That was a character with a ton of potential, and it's nice to see you really utilizing it here. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Foswell was very different in the comics in terms of what his reveal is at the end. Um, you know, the idea that Foswell was the big man um, for us didn't ring true in a modern era, um, that this guy would have time to be a reporter and and poses patch and then still uh, run around and run all the gangs. And why would he have the weight to do that? Why would he have the chops to do that? Um, none of it seemed realistic to us, but we wanted to honor Foswell's dual identity thing. So we did play him as patch and, um, and we feel we got down to the core of the Foswell character and the way that Jonah treated him when he was down and, and how, I mean, the nice thing about Jonah is he's an equal opportunity offender, you know, uh, even when Foswell's up, he's not praising Foswell. He's just get out of my office, you know, kind of thing. Um, so it was a lot of, a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I really noticed that, especially we're getting so much history here. I like the idea that Foswell wrote an expose that took, that helped take down Silvermane back, how many years was it? They said ten years, I think. Uh, I forget, but it, but yeah, it was some time ago, and from both Joan and really Foswell's point of view, uh, it's like Foswell's still living off that story. You know, he got a Pulitzer for it some time ago, and he's been trying to sort of recapture that glory, um, taking occasionally foolish chances, um, going to extremes that you kind of would buy more in a much younger man. Um, but he's trying to sort of be that guy still. Um, and, uh, 
so it's fun to sort of see Pete's sympathy for him and um, Pete's sort of amazement and see that Foswell still has it, you know, his ability to to um, bug that auction and all that sort of stuff is, uh, is fun. Well, the auction was really fun. I love watching these personalities come together. Even though Doc Ock doesn't say anything. Now, I've noticed he doesn't bid. And I remember when I was watching the episode, I was wondering about that. But then I realized he created this thing. He's just there to see where it goes. Although that does make me surprise me a little bit that he was invited in the first place. So am I assessing this thing wrong? No, I mean, yeah, from Doc Ock's standpoint, he could recreate that anytime he wanted to. Um, but he's there to sort of see where it's going. But the big thing for him is he doesn't want anyone else to have this technology. Whether he decides to keep it exclusive to Rhino or whether he decides to create a hundred more Rhinos down the road, that's for him to decide. He doesn't want the fruits of his work going to anyone else. So when it does go to someone else, what's his first step? He goes to an interested party and says, just thought you ought to know. And, uh, knowing exactly uh, how Rhino would react to that. Um, and uh, that's fun. I mean, you know, Clancy's performances as both George Stacy and Rhino are both fantastic. Rhino's always a funny, you know, villain, lots of fun, um, dangerous, but also funny. Um, and I love that moment when he starts uh, smashing down the parking structure and, Pete suddenly real Spidey suddenly realizes, oh my God, I've just gotten um, fooled by the same ploy I used on uh, Shocker back in episode four. You know, it's sort of like, uh, how did I fall for this? This is my gag. Um, and uh, you know, all that was a lot of fun. I mean, there's there's a ton of fun stuff here. I mean, I love Hammerhead Chauffeur. Um, you know, and and what she does with the car and how Hammerhead's car is used it gets pretty beat up, but just, you know, it becomes a weapon in her hand and a rescue vehicle and everything all rolled up into one. And then, uh, you know, Sable's a lot of fun, too, with her helicopter pilot has sort of a similar kind of symbiotic relationship going there. Plus, she has a staple gun. I, I was just about to bring that up. The return of the staple gun. Okay, for everyone listening who might not know, the staple gun s- seems to make a cameo in just about every show you produce. Now, why is that? <laughs> I think it just looks cool, and it's certainly effective. I mean, if you're trying to, um, on the one hand, capture someone as opposed to kill them, those giant staples that sort of manacle your hands or your feet or whatever uh, to the floor or to the wall or or whatever. Uh, I think it, it just has this cool, effective thing. It's a little sci-fi, but um, doesn't feel like you're firing laser beams or something like that. And then, uh, and then at some point it also becomes, you know, well, this is one of my signatures so uh but mostly i just think it's effective and visually neat um so i just like it yeah i enjoy i enjoy it too i remember 
as I recall the history, the Gargoyles episode Cloud Father Xanatos is using one to pin the Gargoyles when he was trying to trap the Coyote Trickster. And then in Young Justice, both Black and Blue Beetle, I believe, used them as weapons. So this yeah, it, yeah, it becomes a cool sort of Beetle thing. And Beetle has staples in multiple sizes. It's fun. Yeah. Did it show up in Witch? I forget. I don't know if we did it in Witch. I can't. It doesn't seem like a natural for that show, but maybe we did. It's been so many years. Mm-hmm. I, on that note, I've got to say, if you ever write an autobiography, you should title it Shakespeare and Staple Guns. Uh, yeah, well, maybe not. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, I can tell you enjoyed that. I can tell you enjoyed that. Um, I do enjoy the the team up between Spidey and Rhino in this one. I mean, they seldom. I mean come together like that, especially since Rhino seems to hate Peter more than most. We already talked about how he tricked the, him earlier, but I do like how this depiction of Rhino was usually, it's, it seems so easy to just make him dumb, and while he is dumb, he's also clever. Well, he's clever up to a point, yeah, so um, it is fun, you know. Spidey knows this is a bad idea, but there's the expediency of the moment that they're both on the same side and they've got to, you know, smash that thing uh, one way or another. And if they're fighting each other, then one of the other bad guys might get away with it. So the trick is to, um, you know, can we team up just long enough? And then again, when Rhino says, sorry, I'm about to kill you, Spidey isn't surprised. He's not, uh, I mean, we could have played that as, oh my God, um, you're betraying me, but instead it's, you know, no kumbayas, uh, kind of moment for Spidey. He knew this was coming. Um, he doesn't, you know, immediately get caught up and thrown by it. He that does get, like I said, a little suckered by the shocker gag, but doesn't, uh, lose it. Um, or he isn't caught, you know, tremendously off guard. So that all works for me. Yeah, I mean, I remember when this episode first aired, there were some people who interpreted Rhino's motivations as a little bit altruistic, self-serving but altruistic. I mean, self-serving that he didn't want competition, but maybe he also didn't want what happened to him to happen to other people as well. I'm not entirely sure I buy into that, but I saw enough people saying that. that I'm wondering if that was ever in your head when you were producing this episode. Not for a second. I did not think so. I did not think so because I think he just wants, likes, and wants to be unique. Yeah. Uh, uh, and he doesn't want anyone else to have this. This is his. He feels ownership over it. Um, he loves it, but uh, he doesn't need any competition and doesn't want any competition. And less because, oh, I don't even think it's like, geez, someone could beat me at my own game. I don't even think it's about that. I just think he literally likes being the only one. Um, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a monopoly on himself. Mm-hmm. And, yes, and thank you for confirming that, because I've ha- been having this debate with other fans of the show for several years now, and um, I, I would tell them, if it was Flint, I could see that, but no, not not from Alex O'Hearn, not him. No, I, I I don't think so. And another big portion of this episode, which I 
notice every time it jumps out to me, Liz here is the antithesis of almost every Silver Age girlfriend. I love it. I love how understanding she is of Peter and his situation. I mean, it was really heartwarming to see, and uh, at the same time, a little bit heartbreaking that it's not going to, that it was never meant to work between them, that it couldn't work between them. No, I mean, it can't. It, it is heartbreaking. I, uh, that was the intent. I mean, you want, you know, Liz shows up uh, as this sort of interloper who, you know, belatedly decides she wants Peter. Um, and just as Peter's about to, ready to get with Gwen, and Peter being a dumb 16-year-old male uh, doesn't, know how to address this he does you know in essence he's getting the opportunity for some smoochies and and uh and it's hard to say no to that even when you're already at a place where that's the wrong thing and liz is so gung-ho about them being a couple it's more than he knows how to deal with at least at this stage in the season um but you're right liz is a great girlfriend. I mean, she just is. She's, um, you know, she doesn't know anything about the Spider-Man stuff, but she does know that he has to work for a living, and she knows he has to take pictures. She sees those pictures in the paper periodically, and she knows he's not cheating on her, or doesn't think for a minute that he is, uh, or that he doesn't care. He just has financial priorities, and she's understanding enough to say, I get that. Um, and she's so good that he says, I really don't deserve you, do I? And she says, you really don't, but we'll work on that. And um, and so it's all really good. And then he walks away saying, wow, Gwen is great. And he's like, oh, Liz, Liz, uh, you know, because his mind is just not on her. Um, it's not that he would be a better boyfriend to Gwen um, because Spider-Man stuff would get in the way and photography would get in the way of Gwen, too. It's just that's where his head's at. Um, and it's not with Liz, and that makes it tough, and, but Liz doesn't know that, and fundamentally, Peter doesn't really know it either. I mean, there's a piece of him that knows, but on a conscious level, he's trying to do as good a job as he can with Liz, um, given all the stuff pulling him in multiple, multiple different directions, and he's just not, he just doesn't have his head around what he really wants, who he really wants, um, all he sees is, here's a girl who wants to be with me, and that's new for him. That alone is new for him. And so he can't see past that for the moment. He's going to have to work his way to uh, some kind of epiphany. Yeah, I remember being a teenager. <laughs> Sometimes it's close to home. And, um, like I said, I know I planned this at the beginning, but I do love the ending. It all comes together in a scene where we find out that Norman Osborn was behind it all. He got everything he wanted out of this half a billion dollars and all these crime lords at each other's throats. This is a straight up, if you don't mind me describing it this way, a David Xanatos tag. Uh, say again? A David Xanatos tag. Uh, I suppose, yeah. I mean, I can see that. 
again, stylistically, these two guys are very different, um, though I do see that they have things in common. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, a false disc was given in the first place. There was just no way that information is too valuable. Who's actually going to let it go? But he's able to uh, cash in on it for any for whatever short-term financial need there is. Um, and the sense we tried to give throughout the episode, even though he only appears at the very end, is he's given Pete this special phone, and he's given you know that we're keeping him alive throughout the episode as this sort of absent figure so that when he finally comes in, there's this, um, you know, uh, Norman kind of moment for him. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, he, you know, he lives up to all the hype is basically the idea. Oh, he totally, he totally does. And I'm not saying that he's like Xanatos. He obviously isn't. I, believe, I agree with you stylistically. I mean, I could write an entire essay on the differences between Norman Osborn and David Xanatos. But, I mean, one one is sane, for example, and that's just at the top of the list. But, but it's still a great moment. I love villains that weave their master plans like this. I mean... Xanatos and Thalog prior to this, Nerissa and Witch, Norman Osborn here, Tombstone to an extent, and then afterwards, the light on Young Justice. I just love that sort of thing. I mean, I gotta ask, I mean, especially long-term-wise, how do you juggle villains like this or that smart in their goals or that complex? Um, You know, it's about respecting them, I guess. You know, um, you don't have to... You don't have to... um, want them to succeed in their goals to respect their intelligence and to respect their competence. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, when you created characters and put them in these positions of power, you have to, you know, go on the assumption, create the backstory, create the evidence to show that you mm-hmm. believe they got there. Um, how do you get up to running a whole company if you're a, vengeful, petty idiot, you know, um, so he's not an idiot, uh, I'm not saying he's never vengeful, but he's not petty, and, uh, um, you know, he's a nasty piece of business, but you understand how he got from point A to point B, and that's assuming he started at point B in episode one of the series, um, and, you know, now we're going to take him from point B up to point C or D or, or Q. But if you don't respect him, how is any of that going to be believable? And so that's where you've got to start. You've got to start from a position of um, if you're going to show this build, you've got to believe that this guy is uh, capable of achieving it or capable of achieving what he's gotten so far at the minimum. Oh, I definitely believe that, and and I and what you said about him not being a petty, vengeful idiot. I mean, and but I I just love moments like that. Love them. I mean, it. I love all of your villains, especially the really intelligent master schemer villains. They are always fun to watch. They've always taken me by surprise. Back, back during the Gargoyles days, Xanatos always surprised me. Norman Manch surprised me here, even though I, which we'll talk about more in Final Curtain, and then once we get, and the light 
are surprising me to this day over on Young Justice Outsiders. So I'm really enjoying that. I really enjoy watching you, your, your villains work, and I'm hoping to see more of them, be it new new Reign of the Ghost books or whatever, whatever your other whatever other projects are coming forward. Is there? Well, thank. You. Appreciate that. And I uh, appreciate. I mean it. I mean every word of it. I've been following your work for a very long time. <laughs> and I, at this point, you know, it feels like a lot of this episode is taken up by action. But I do wonder, is there anything we haven't really hit on yet? Uh, you know, there's little touches, things that watching it last night uh, were fun. You know, there's and mostly silliness, you know, uh, Spider-Man, just for the hell of it, throwing a traffic cone onto Rhino's horn, and it's like, I got the thing on the thing, and it's like, uh, uh, what do, do I win? I win? And, and, and Rhino turns, sees him, says, you, and it's like, I wouldn't me? Well, that makes no sense. You know, it's just silliness, but it's fun, and it feels very spidey to me. Uh, Rhino's saying, I'm dismembering our partnership. They're just little dialogue touches throughout that I think are, are great, um, the George Stacy subplot is a lot of fun for me in that little uh, harp uh, cue that DMP did for Stacy. Every time he's hinting so strongly to Pete that, look, I know who you are, um, kind of thing. Um, that all uh, feels very uh, tight and close. Uh, between those two characters, want to build up that relationship, um, just as we're building up Liz and, and Pete. Um, little touches like uh, uh, Hobie's about to raise his hand, gets called on, and then the bell rings, and so it's like, hold that thought, Hobie, because we're not going to let Hobie speak yet. That running gag throughout multiple episodes was um, was fun. Uh you know, like you said, the auction was a lot of fun and seeing everyone's point of view on this. Uh, um, you know, I, it probably covers most of it. I mean, again, one thing that I was struck by is, you know, all these voice actors and Andrew Cascino was there just playing a bodyguard and Gray Del- now Greg Griffin, but Gray Delisle at the time was just the voice of the computer and... Um, and like I said, like one liner for Peter and McNichol and maybe two lines for Alan Rachins as uh, Norman. Yeah, I, I'm just, I was just really struck by, um, I mean, Harry has, you know, uh, only a line or two, but that's okay because he's also, uh, James Arnold Taylor is also playing Boswell, who had quite a lot to do. But I really was struck by, wow, we really uh, went to town on the voice actors here. <laughs> Um, hey, when you got to pool that talented, you want to keep using them. It's true, but, you know, uh, it's a money thing, mostly. I, I, I was stunned by it, but uh, in hindsight. But uh, it was a lot of, you know, there was always a lot of love and making spec society, mm-hmm. and we had a lot of fun doing it. Well, I had a lot of fun watching it. I know a lot of other people had a lot of fun watching it. There's a reason why, despite only lasting 26 episodes, it is this this show is still fondly remembered to this day. I mean, it's gonna be it's always gonna be one of those 
gems in Spider-Man history, and I really hope more and more people keep on discovering it. I mean, I always love hearing from new people who discovered it, which happens quite often. We still have new people who join the Keep Spectacular Spider-Man Alive Facebook at least every other every week, so that's always fun. I mean, it's it's nice that this show has not been forgotten, despite maybe I don't know with the friction between Marvel and Sony, I, Sony or what's going on there but um and i do like seeing that your influences and the things that you've developed with these characters with your interpretations on these characters live on i mean even in the live action movies i'm seeing things that feel like they could have come right out of spectacular um yeah i mean i i everything we did we felt one way or another came right out of you know the comics we just did our in on them to try and make it fit our version of the Spider-Man corner of the Marvel Universe. Um, and God knows we would have loved to have made more, um, but it, you know, we're extremely, Vic and I and Sean Galloway and Josh Keaton and everyone who participated in that show, we're all really proud of, of what we did do. And those 26 episodes are, um, you know, if I do say so myself, pretty, pretty special. No, I agree. I agree. The only, I mean, and I was saying this the other day. I appeared on another on another podcast. I mean, the the only regret about this series is that it ended when it did. But I don't know if it didn't end when it did. We might not have had Young Justice now, and that's another really special series. So maybe things happen for a reason. Doesn't mean we won't eventually, hopefully, someday get a chance to revisit this, like you got to do with Gargoyles or Young Justice. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to. I, it seems really tough for this particular property, much tougher than bringing back YJ or even bringing back Gargoyles uh, because of ownership issues. But, um, you know, given the opportunity, I'd love to play in the Spider-Man verse again. And we'd love to see you do that. I mean, you've done it a, at least once in the comics, and hopefully you'll get a chance to do that again. All right, well, um... It's, I think we've covered everything about this episode. This wasn't as long as some of our other podcasts, but I feel we got a lot of gems out there. I think my favorite reveal of the episode was Hammerhead's backstory and the origin of his skull. Yeah, that was that was fun. I think uh, he had inappropriate relations with the boss's daughter. <laughs> Boss didn't want it, and Hammerhead paid for it. As... But he's made the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, and we'll talk more about him in the coming weeks because in the coming months because um, next week's next month's episode, the month after that, we've got some really big hammerhead moments coming up. Yep, that's true. And before, all right, and before we um, close things for now, is there anything you're working on right now, or anything that you've got that you want to promote? Uh, well, my novel, uh, War of the Spark Ravnica, is out now. You can get it. It's uh, I'm very proud of it. Uh, if you're a Magic the Gathering fan, I think you'll really like it. If you're not a Magic the Gathering fan, everything you need to know is in the book to enjoy this big uh, uh, culminating uh, fantasy epic uh, adventure. Uh, and then I've just finished writing the second book of the series, uh, War of the Spark Forsaken, and that comes out uh, at the end of this year, uh, uh, 2019. So, um, plus, I've done uh, a series of six short stories for 
Magic the Gathering that's on the uh, Magic the Gathering website. You can find that fiction there, and that's free. So if you like, you know, my stuff, I think you'll probably like this uh, stuff as well. And uh, check them out. Mad, um, War of the Spark Ravnica out now. Uh, War of the Spark Forsaken uh, out at the end of the year. Really looking forward to it. And, of course, hashtag Keep Binging Young Justice. Keep Binging YJ, yeah. Keep Binging YJ. Thank you for coming on, Greg. It's a pleasure, as always. And looking forward to talking to you again. And see you soon. And see your work even sooner, because Young Justice Outsiders is currently on. And I'm enjoying that very much. Yeah, and I should mention that, too, obviously. Uh, I, I don't know when... As we're recording this, the 17th episode of the season uh, just dropped on DC Universe. Uh, this coming Tuesday is the 18th. I don't know when this podcast will actually be up and out, but uh, all through the month of July and August of 2019, every Tuesday, new episode or three uh, coming out for uh, the third season of YJ as we finish out uh, Young Justice Outsiders in uh, July and August of 2019. Right. If you like teenage heroes, if you like romance, and if you like Machiavellian villi- villains, watch this show. <laughs> yep. Anyway, please do. Please. Anyway, thank you very much, Greg, and we'll see you next month. Sounds good. Thanks, uh, Greg. Thank you. What, what, what do I win? You! I win me? <laughs> that makes no sense.